and welcome to Old Timey Crimey Presents The Murders on Lover's Lane. I am Christy. And I am Amber. And we are going to tell you about the next murders, plural, in the Lover's Lane series in just a moment. Don't forget, you can always come over to our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And over there, you can not only get bonus episodes where Amber and I talk about crimes we dig up from the old newspapers and then sometimes just wacky other stuff, you know. Like, we break the rules on that side. We really do. Sometimes we jump a little bit forward more in the timeline and it's not as old timey. Sometimes we go really far back. Sometimes I, I do, like, I think one time I, it was weird ways that people have died. Yes, that was fun. And uh, people that died by their own inventions was a fun one. Uh, you know, I'll just, like, go through those Wikipedia lists and then just flesh them out with, uh, with all the details I can find of the weird little cases there. So, yes, uh, come on over. You get that and early access to the episodes here so that is obviously limited time only because that's just these lovers lane miniseries episodes while they're running once we get back to normal it'll just be regular episodes and there won't be any more early access so just letting you know come on over there you can do a uh, seven day free trial and you can also sample the episodes like five minutes ten minutes so give us a listen link is in the show notes of course all right, so we are heading all the way to Nebraska. Nope, Colorado, actually. <laughs> Colorado. Colorado, definitely Colorado. To Denver for this particular case in the Lover's Lane series. It's got a few differences, I think, but a few similarities that make it so we can't really cut it off from, from the rest of the group. Yeah, and I actually, I found one article linking it to the last case that we talked about as well, that they really thought it was the same person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I can understand why they would. There are enough similarities that you do wonder. But it's a strange case, I think. And so, uh, yes, we are in Colorado. And it's the summertime still. Where we're very summer, much summer, times. We're very much enjoying this nice, sultry August night. And uh, maybe a man boards a bus in Englewood. And um, maybe the bus drops him off at Federal Boulevard in uh, Denver. And then the bus goes on its merry way and the man stalks down Federal Boulevard as the warm summer air parts before him. Maybe a few hours before that, at a boarding house in that same city, there was a young man named Fred Funkner, whose name will never not be a thing of wonder to me. See, I love it. And I actually had in my notes Funker because a lot of the articles I found called him Funker. And so it's really fun for me to say Funker. Yeah, Funker. I also say, saw in a couple of places Faulkner. Well, yeah, it's, it's forever Funker. I like, I like Funkner. The tongue does, does not trip easily over it. <laughs> and uh, that's, I think, why I like it. So young Fred Funkner, he is 19. He's lived in Denver for a few years, just about two. He relocated from Cub Creek, Nebraska uh, to work as a carpenter. His sister actually had married and then moved out here to Denver. So he just kind of followed where she went. And uh, he kind of had an, an unexpected evening ahead of him. It was a, a Sunday 
His landlady had a few relatives over, young ladies. Uh, they were sisters. Marie McCormick, who was 17, and uh, Julia Stearns, who was 32. The newspapers constantly said 25, but I'm here to tell you, uh, 32. Oh, did you hear differently? You have a look. Well, yeah, I had different ages, but still, that is a, a large gap between it siblings. It is. They come from a very large family, and uh, it is very Irish. Ah, okay. It all makes sense now. Yeah, okay. their parents came over from Ireland, and uh, just so you know that they were the lucky ones who made it to adulthood in that family, or, well, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it was, looking through the, the list of the siblings there, the majority did not make it to adulthood. So, so yes, Irish, uh, <laughs> both of her parents. And uh, so, yes, they're sisters. They're uh, working for a tailoring shop. Julia has a little bit of a history. She's been widowed and divorced, actually. Oh. Yes, the newspapers just said divorced, but then when I was able to look at her history when she's in the 1920 census, she's listed as living with her family but widowed. And she has a different last name, Carter. Oh, She's, she's had a hell of a life already. She's had a really interesting life, yeah, yeah. And she, at that point in time, she was working as a telephone operator, actually. Rounding out the group, we have Carl Perry. He's 25. Did you find very much on Carl Perry? I did not. Can I tell you how irritated I am with how common a name Carl Perry seemed to be? I know. I even tried initials. I tried Charles Perry in a few places. But even that, I mean, that's even more... <laughs> common as you can imagine and um yeah it's it's strange that he's the one who d who disappears but he also has such a common name and I had a hard time tr tracking the sisters down as well it took me a little while to finally get them yeah it was it was uh damn it Carl yeah damn it Carl because just to show you how difficult it can be sometimes um Marie went um her first name was actually Bridget oh so that's why... That's why I couldn't find her. Exactly. Yep, there you go. It's, that's, it's that name thing again. Yeah, because they would just constantly go by, this is the name I'm going to go by, this is the name the papers are going to report, and then they're going to report the wrong age, so it makes it even more difficult to track them down. Exactly. Yes. As long as you have, the, you have almost no information, and the information that you do have might not even be right. Yeah, <laughs> it, it makes for a, a tough, uh, a tough uh, find. It does. It does. Um... And then you have, you also have the fact that these are families that don't have a lot of roots here in the country. Um, again, like I said, the McCormick family, both parents Irish-born. The Funkner family, both parents Russian-born. So everybody here has emigrated. Um, a lot of them, parents, you know, these are first-generation Americans. <laughs> what? Well, as soon as, I didn't realize they were Russian, and as soon as you said that, I'm like, I bet they tried to make their last name fucker, <laughs> and they just weren't saying it right, and so that's how they ended up with that last name. <laughs> of course, in your mind, it always comes down to some mischief, <laughs> or attempted mischief. That is not a Russian name. Like, <laughs> come on. I did, I do remember seeing kind of a variation of what the name was, um, but I can't remember what it was. Um, what the original one uh, was on the documentation. But, I mean, even... I look at a lot of census records, and it's rare that the names are actually written down accurately. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. For my own last name, I've seen Boxster. 
yeah. Boxster. I mean, my name usually gets written down correctly, but when it gets wrong, it sounds so silly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you just change one letter in that whole name and it just turns really silly. So, yes, it's, it's really amazing how many of our victims here have been children of immigrants. I don't think it's necessarily a target thing. I think it speaks to the population of America at that time. Oh, yeah, absolutely, because everybody was still coming over. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's not like we just, everybody woke up one day and everyone's just here. No, like, people were coming over during this time, lots and lots, boatloads. Yeah, entire actual literal boatloads. And you had, you know, things going on, unrest in other countries that were sending people our way. You know, you had... You know, it's entirely possible that the Funkners were, were Jewish and might have, you know, come over as a result of a pogrom or something like that. Yeah. Um, you have, you know, Ireland, some sort of, you know, sectarian violence or a famine. I don't know the exact timing uh, or, you know, what was going on in history. Or maybe they just felt like taking a trip and, you know, decided to stay longer. Who knows? Sometimes you extend your stay. Maybe, maybe the dad had <laughs> been kicked out of every pub and so he decided to switch countries. Yeah, yeah. He was like, oh, we got, we got to start fresh now. So they're all at the boarding house, and uh, the landlady is like, oh, well, I have all these nice young people here. Why don't I try and just put them all together, and they can go off and have fun like young people should. And so she suggests that they go out for a drive and maybe go, you know, do something fun and summery. Um, so they all go to an amusement park together. Now, I don't know what amusement park they went to, and actually, um, a very frustrating thing is that the Denver papers from this year, 1925, are not really available um, on any of the newspaper database sites. You can usually get up to like 1923 or 1924, which is really frustrating. I don't know why it's more frustrating, but it is. But you do have in other years, uh, for instance, just to give you an example, Lakeside, Denver's Mile High Coney, where you can do dancing, skating, boating, music, life, action, fun, life, thrilling rides, novel shows, shaded picnic grounds. Yeah, they, just, they just started throwing random nouns in there at some point. Somebody yell purple. <laughs> just like word association started happening. On a Saturday and Sunday, you had the Wrath of War, Lakeside's biggest spectacular success. You could have a sunset dinner on the balcony. There was rides, there's dancing lessons, bathing beach. That so, actually sounds like fun, though. It sounds pretty freaking nice. Hot and cold showers, women's lounging room, and fine aquatic equipment. Does that mean pool noodles? I feel like that's pool noodles. I want it to be like skidoos. Maybe, maybe. Maybe goggles. There you go. <laughs> Have some goggles. It's our fine aquatic equipment. Back before they knew how pink eye spread. <laughs> so, yeah, that's an example of maybe what they might have done. Maybe they went and, you know, walked on a boardwalk or did something somewhere. And so they go out, go about their night, have a nice time. And uh, then they're heading back. They're driving back to the city on South Federal Boulevard in a roadster. Uh, Fred is driving. Julia is next to him. I don't know if this is like a two in the front, two in the back, kind of four-seater, or where everybody's sitting as far as 
the other two, but somewhere in this car, Carl Perry and Marie McCormick are sitting together, and it seems like Marie is kind of sitting on his lap. So I don't know how the, the extra seat or seats were set up. I don't know if there was actually a seat for her and she chose his lap, or if that was her only option. So it could have just been a third seat and no fourth seat. I don't know. But she's sitting on his lap. And then Carl tells us what happened. And Maybe it's just like a, a bench seat in the front. Mm -hmm. And so like, it, it's like Fred, Julia, Carl, and then Marie sitting on Carl's lap. That's entirely possible too. They could all be sitting on a bench seat in the front too. Yeah. And then it would, it would make a lot of sense for her to be on his lap, too, because I'm sure it's not wide enough for four people. It's probably a squeeze for three. Yeah, and, and so that's what I'm thinking, because if there was a back seat, it doesn't make sense that she would be on his lap unless. <laughs> um, but, I mean, these, these are just, like, people that, that just met. Like, they're yeah. not friends. So it, it makes me really think that it's just a bench seat, and that's how you're squeezing in. Yeah, basically. So we have Perry's description of what happened next in his own words. It was terrible. We never had a chance. We were riding along, joking and laughing. All of a sudden, out of the darkness, a man leaped on the running board and thrust a pistol through the side of the car. He had ordered us to drive down a little lane. We did as he directed. All the time, he kept cursing us. Finally, he told us to stop. Then he stepped from the running board and jerked open the door. Give me your cash, he yelled. I had dropped what little money I had behind the cushion. We told him we were broke. A few words were, say, were said. I don't remember what. Suddenly, he jerked a second pistol from his belt. The youth broke down and was able to continue only after a few minutes. There were bright flashes of fire. One, two, three. They seemed never to stop. I remember Marie gave a groan and slid out of the car door onto the road. I remember throwing up my arm to protect my face. Something stung me in the arm. There was a moan and I knew Funkner was hit. When he slumped over the wheel, I jumped out of the car and ran. I didn't know where I was going, only that I was going for help. I saw a man running down the road. He was the man who held us up. I ran the other way. There was a house. I hammered at the door. There was a light, and a man opened the door. I told him they were all dead. He got some clothes and ran with me. When we got back to the car, his voice broke. They weren't there. We did what we could. We didn't have a chance. So that is, in his own words, the truly terrifying events that happened on what otherwise would have been a lovely evening. And even scarier that it kind of sounds like he was running at the shooter for a second and then, like, turned tail and went the other direction. Yeah, like he accidentally, you know, just in his terror, picked a direction and ran, and it was the exact wrong one. Yeah. Yeah, very, very terrifying. Uh, so... He, uh, there's another version of the story, not in his own words, that leaves out the burglary, the running board, and even the two guns entirely. It kind of has the shooting happening without warning. And there are some versions of the story where it seems like that's what's happening, and also that the shooting is happening, like, almost like a sniping, like, from the road. Um, but in Carl Perry's words, it seems like the shooter was actually right there. Yeah, and, like, I, I did have one that he was on a motorcycle, and this seems like an action movie, so he's on a motorcycle and then jumps from the motorcycle to the running boards. Mm. Okay, so you've got one with the motorcycle in it. Okay, I had not, I don't believe I had seen one with the motorcycle in it. 
which is interesting because we'll get to that. That motorcycle pops back up. And I was wondering where the hell it had come from to begin with. <laughs> same, same. Um, but I did find one, and this was actually like August 3rd. So this was like the very next day. Uh, this would have been from the uh, Kenosha News. Kenosha. And uh, it says, in a sensational holdup, the party was driving on a country road when the bandit came by on a motorcycle and jumped on the running board of the car. Hmm. Yeah. So, action movie shit right there. Yeah, it seriously is. It really is. We've had... Running boards are featuring very dramatically so far in this little mini-series. Uh, we had jumping on the running board after being, you know, shot in the jaw uh, to, to ask for help. Yeah. Um, we have jumping on the running board to shoot. Um, so, yeah. To... And, like, think about how many cars actually have running boards that you could jump on nowadays. Just, like, the big trucks because you need them to get in it. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. There's you, you, you cannot have running board drama these days. They, they've took it away from much us. They've less. taken it away. Much less. It's still possible. You just got to go for the big trucks. The woke mob. The woke mob did it. Took our running board drama. So, yes, he gives us um, all of this. The, the version, there's one version that does give us sort of an order of events. First, Fred Funkner, then Julia Stearns, then Marie, and finally Perry. Now, the ladies, it seems, they were dead long before help arrived. And then Funkner died on the way to the hospital. Carl was wounded, uh, his right arm and his neck, although some, you know, some accounts say the shoulder, but he was mobile. Um, and it's really a toss-up. Did he go to a farmhouse? Did he go to a drugstore and call? It's amazing how these differences get mangled and I swear sometimes if people don't know, if the reporters are writing these things and don't know, they just make it up. Or they have a wheel that they spin. when <laughs> they're like, okay, where did he go for help? To the drugstore? To a farm? To a passing motorist? You know, to what? Santa I, Claus? I feel like it's a uh, cabin in the woods. Yes! Oh, there you go. They've yeah, got yeah. the whiteboard and they're just taking bets and they're like, what's it going to be this time? Chainsaw? All right, you got it. Very much so, yes. So it's, but there are some ranchers who get involved in help. Now, Carl said that the killer fled on foot across a field after the shooting. But then this motorcycle comes in that you had mentioned before. And um, the Denver riot squad, when they got on the scene, they, quote, gave chase to a motorcycle that was traveling south on the Morrison Road. Yes, without lights, careening wildly over the roads, twisting around corners and curves to dodge the lights of the police car. We are definitely having a real live police chase here, people. Do you know how hard it would be to, one, drive like that on a motorcycle, but then with no lights so that the police can't see you? That's almost impressive, if that's real. That's very, very difficult. In the dark. Oh, God. You would have to know those roads like the back of your hand and not die. You really would. I The, the idea that this is some outsider traveling around is starting to get a couple of chips in it here and there. It's not as shiny as it was. Yeah, because, like, Christy and I live in uh, Pennsylvania. And so this is mountains and all the roads are up and down and super windy. And I feel like I could drive like a crazy person on them because I know them like the back of my hand. Mm -hmm. But if I took a road that I've never been on before, hell no, I'm going to wreck into a tree. Yeah, because you don't know when the curves are coming. You don't know when to expect them. And even if there's signs, it's like, oh, sharp curve ahead. And you're like, oh, ha, ha, ha. 
No, yeah. you don't understand. <laughs> and in my younger years, when I was a little bit of a daredevil, I did actually drive on Christie's Road with my eyes shut to see if I could do it. And I could. You know, no. Oh, I sure did. Um, but that was, again, when I was younger and uh, did not have a strong will to survive. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't, nobody could do that without knowing the roads. So like, I'm, I'm already sus with like, yeah, this guy just showed up from Indiana and did this stuff. Yeah. That, that seems unlikely to me. Um, and then, uh, it seems like the motorcyclist got, uh, as far as Fort Logan and then lost the police. And you would think that there would be some sort of a, you know, issue of, we have a, a different report here between Carl Perry saying he fled on foot and the police saying, no, he fled on motorcycle. But it seems like the officers had perfectly resolved that. They said uh, there was no conflict. Um, they pointed out that they, he could have left the machine on Sheridan Boulevard in one of the many lanes that led from this boulevard traveling on foot from the scene of his crime to the motorcycle. So that definitely makes it seem more thought out, at least from their point of view. And that makes sense, because if you jumped on a running board and then made them go somewhere, you have to leave on foot to get back to where your shit is. Yeah, if you, like, what happens to the motorcycle? You're going to be wandering around trying to find it. <laughs> like, you, you can't just jump from the motorcycle onto the running board and then what, is the motorcycle just going to chug along next to you all, you know, yeah, like one-handed like you're walking a bicycle? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> very, very silly. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely, um, they're like, no, it, it could definitely be both. They searched the area. All they found was a small piece of cloth on a fence near the spot where the murder, murders, sorry, occurred. And, of course, you know, a small piece of cloth. Well, that could be anything. That could be anybody's. We do get a description from Carl. Once again, we have a survivor, and so we have a witness. He says the holdup man was swarthy, complexioned, collarless, and wore a striped silk shirt. What the fuck does that even mean? Um, he was foreign. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, in my head, because he also gains a straw hat later, in my mind, he's definitely um, in Venice on a, on a gondola oh. and rowing. Oh, okay. He's got the striped shirt and a straw hat and he's uh, swarthy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. I really think he just basically described a stereotypical gondola rower. Did he have a red kerchief? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I think questions need to be asked here. We need more questions about the wardrobe. It is, it is a strange uh, description, and the striped silk shirt. Silk is kind of a How weird... do you know it's silk? And also, what man wears silk shirts with straw hats? Also, how would you keep a straw hat on your head if you're on a motorcycle or hanging on the side of a car. None of this makes sense. Well, there is, in for some reason, later on in this case, 
it pops up the idea of it being a woman dressed as a man. Okay. A woman dressed as a man might wear hat pins. Mmm, that would keep the hat on. Yeah, we keep the hat on. Why did she dress like a gondola striper? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. The stripes hide my <laughs> boobies. <laughs> it's not flattering. It makes me look broader. Yeah. So I love how like three people died and I'm over here just like critiquing fashion. <laughs> well, but seriously, no, I read that description like six times and I still was like, I don't see anything but one thing one very specific cultural touchstone thing like that's all i have i i suppose it yeah the the hat really does lend to gondola driver without the hat i could have gone mime yeah yeah but no with the hat that's really yeah i didn't go there but i i'm there now Mm mm-hmm uh, another piece of evidence we get is that they did find a footprint near the scene that's suspected was, you know, belonging to a person of interest. And so they had a plaster of Paris mold made of that. They did a post-mortem, of course, of all the bodies. And uh, I think, as far as I'm aware, the only item of interest in that was that uh, Marie McCormick's neck was broken, actually. Well, she had fallen out of the car. And so she was sitting on his lap, on Carl's lap, and she had kind of like rolled out of the car, it seems like. So she would might have broken her neck falling, falling out. straight on her head. Yeah. Yeah, well, especially if... Because I, I, I thought it was a headshot, so she was probably dead before they even, like... Before she landed, I guess. That, yeah. That sounds callous, but... Um, yeah, so it could just be the, the weird angle that she landed on because she didn't have a hand down or anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a $1,250 reward being offered for information leading to the capture of the murderer. Uh, that's $88,000 received as compensation today. And 500 of that came from the manager of the tailoring store where the ladies worked. Oh, that was very sweet. It was very sweet. So on August 6th, the residents of Golden, Colorado, which is about a 15-minute drive today from uh, Denver, are looking over their shoulders and locking their doors because someone found an abandoned motorcycle on the road around Graveyard Hill, of all places. I love that you got the road name because uh, the article I found is Road West of Here. (laughs) Oh, they missed that beautiful little detail. They probably didn't want to. They're like, nope, nope, mm -mm, (laughs) not saying it. Uh I loved it. I was like, yeah, that is perfect. Oh, that is perfect. But but the AP Mm. was like, nope. Oh, of course. Yeah, the AP. Yeah. So it was reported Tuesday morning and an officer brought it into the city that night Now, it had no license plate, no headlight, and was covered in mud. The Colorado transcript kind of had an interesting read on this. So the the recent rains in the immediate vicinity of Golden would not cover any vehicle like the one in the police's possession. And I'm like, well, rain wouldn't cover it in mud. Like, I don't really understand. Rain would kind of, like, rinse it off. I mean, it wouldn't necessarily leave it shining and sparkling clean, but it wouldn't be described as muddy anymore. 
Yeah, that that's how I wash my car is I just leave it out in the rain. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, like covered in mud. That sentence makes me think that he did wreck and just got lucky that it was just into like a puddle of mud. Yeah. But also, if, if you notice, no headlight. So I'm thinking it never had a headlight. Well, I mean, that's entirely possible. One account that I had from the chase did say that he dimmed the light once he seemed to realize that the police were behind him. But that could also be just a mistaken impression of, of you know, somebody suddenly realizing, oh, he doesn't have a headlight and thinking he had just turned it off. Yeah. Well, maybe he didn't have it to begin with. Well, maybe he never had a license plate because, like, I, I just, tr- crime tip, guys. Uh, if you're going to do crimes, you shouldn't leave your license plate attached anyway. <laughs> because they can track that. So if he was going out knowing that he was going to do a crime of some sort, any sort, really, then he would remove the plate long before he got on the road with it. This is Ben. Crime tips with Amber. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Amber's views are not representative of old Tommy crime. <laughs> I don't know legal mumbo jumbo. So, I'm just saying it was premeditated in some sense of it if he's removing the plates before he leaves the house. We don't know exactly how ubiquitous license plates were back then in 1925. Especially for motorcycles. Mm. Think, uh, okay, so just as an example, and I haven't looked into this, but uh, I have—I think I got this from context clues. I have recently been rewatching. Feel free to judge all you want. I don't care. Designing women. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't have told Amber that while she was drinking something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope. I almost spit that on your microphone. <laughs> So, just just move past it. We're moving past it. Um, it burns a little. It's in my nose. <laughs> <laughs> just, oh. Just, so. Oh, my. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It. I'm going to buy you a lovely bright blue purple pantsuit dress thing <laughs> for your next birthday. Big right. ass can of Aquanet. We, we, All right, designing women. What is what do motorcycles and designing women have in common? We were watching an episode, and it was like set in like 1991, 92, something like that. And they live in Georgia, in Atlanta. And in this episode, everybody was going to take their license test to get their licenses. All these adult, grown women, people who had been driving this entire time on the show, were going to get their licenses. And I can only think, I haven't looked it up yet, but I can only think that that's when Georgia was like, okay, all right, it's time. Everybody's got to have a license to drive. Uh, Georgia barely counts as being in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. They have their, their own thing there. I can see that being possible. And I can see Colorado, you know, like, I can see the lack of a license plate not being as indicative of premeditation as you think. Because of the laws maybe not being as stringent back then. Well, and, and that's totally fair. And and Colorado was the first to legalize pot, right? So maybe they just like breaking some rules. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, sorry to any of our listeners in Georgia. I do not mean to offend, but y'all have your own laws down there that makes me scared to step foot in your state. <laughs> it's like a whole different place. It is. And all their rules are different. I don't know the rules. If I don't know the rules, I don't want to go play the game. I'm just, I, I, don't, I don't want to go to jail. That's all I'm saying. Again. <laughs> so we really, we've got all these motorcycle things, but there's also this guy. Now I mentioned that guy on the bus from Englewood. There is this story that comes out about this guy. Um, the bus driver said he had this real specific guy that he had dropped off uh, around Federal Boulevard around, you know, a little after 1030. And it's kind of tough because I don't they can, I don't think they can be the same. In my mind, it's it's really complicated and silly any possible way you f- you find to make them be one and the same. So one of these clues, either motorcycle man or bus rider, has to be false. Well, that's not surprising. They really they could both be false. They could be, both be false. Yeah, I'm just saying like it, they they're probably not the same guy. So we have the inquest. Carl Perry is a witness. The ranchers who helped him out at the scene are witnesses. And the coroner's jury lands on robbery as a primary objective of the murder. And uh, at the time, Perry agrees. Uh, the, they say that the bandit overlooked a purse containing $8, which Miss McCormick had hidden in her stocking. Uh, a lot of the accounts of the murders have them actually all kind of hiding their money when the bandit first comes to the car. Um, and then the the shooting then being out of anger when they said they had no money. So um, there's this idea that he didn't realize that she had had this $8 in her stocking, $140 today. And uh, another another article does note that the pocketbooks contained a little bit of money, but they, quote, were not molested. Okay. <laughs> and the bandit had left right after the shooting. Didn't even really try after all that. Yeah, he didn't. It didn't seem like he searched anywhere. Yeah, like go to all the trouble of catching a car, jumping on the running board, shooting its occupants. And then don't even bother to try to find some money? Like, what's the point? I mean, at least take the car. Well, you've got a, two bodies in there. Well, I mean, you could roll them out. You can roll them out, yeah. But if, if, you, if you're in a hurry. Um, but they're not going to get much money from these people anyhow. <laughs> yeah, like, so, and that's another thing. Like, these are basically teenagers, like young adults. Mm-hmm. We all know young adults are broke. You want to go for the old farts that have more money and put up less of a fight. Like, if your motive is money, Mm -hmm. this is not your crowd. Yeah, the vast majority, I think pretty much all of our targets here have ended up being working class. Just working class people because, honestly, like... Those are the kind of people who need to go off in a car down to a random lane somewhere where they can find some privacy. If they had more money, they'd be in a hotel. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> they'd have their own apartments, you know? They 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 wouldn't need to go off and find some secret place. They would be able to pay for it. Yeah, like if you're looking for money, you're not going to find it in the woods. What you will find is a gentleman that will pay you in chickens. <laughs> So, like, the robbery thing just doesn't click in my head because I'm like, if that's your goal... It's just a really dumb target to choose. Yeah. Because you're automatically getting what, what some people, if they're looking at from just a financial perspective, would say are lower value. Yeah. You know, your, your targets go to the hotels. <laughs> Yeah. All those people up. <laughs> or a bar. I mean, just get better at pickpocketing. Well, a bar is a little harder in 1925, but... Well, yeah, yes and no. If, you know, if you can get into a speakeasy, so... But yeah, it's just, it's... It, robbery just keeps on seeming, as we go along here, more and more unlikely to me. And it seems like each case we get we find that the robbery angle just doesn't pay off ever. They never get anything. No, they <laughs> never get anything. And like, I feel like too, it was like a mistake. Cause he probably saw like a two seater car or what he assumed was a two seater car. Mm -hmm. And he's like, only two people. I have two guns. This is fine. And then he gets on there. It's too late. And he's like, ah, fuck. All right. Give me all your money. <laughs> Which speaking of the whole two seater thing, just a real quick, um, story about I came across this story and while I was finding all these lovers lane uh tales and finding this one where it was a foursome out on the road and you know I just basically found that the the most bare details I could put it in the spreadsheet and moved on because I didn't want to get bogged down on any one particular case I wanted to just compile everything and then start at the beginning work our way through so I really thought that we had something raunchy <laughs> Because I didn't know the details. Oh, for some. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, I so thought that we had something raunchy. Um, and so I'm, I got started researching it, and I was like, okay, there's going to be something behind all this This whole, like, this will have been the, the, the front, the story, you know, that they were being burglarized, and that the guy ran up to the car as they were driving, when really, you know, it'll come out that they were, you know, somewhere in the woods, and, and they were, you know, on a lover's lane, and... Brown chicken, brown, brown. And... No, that never happened. <laughs> so uh, instead, I found all that in uh, the last story. <laughs> Fun times. Oh, I did see one detail that we didn't go over, and that was Miss um, McCormick, Marie. Her, her clothes were disarranged and torn. Did you see that? See, I hadn't really seen that anywhere. Uh, there's one story, just one, that... Um, her clothes had been torn, and there was evidence that she might have been attacked after she was shot, but no money or jewelry was taken. I trust that less knowing that it was just from one source. I do, too. Yeah. I, I kind of, especially with the, these particular cases, seeing how the information has changed uh, as we've gone along and, and we get, you know, familiar with the original cases, the first cases, and then we see them get incorporated and discussed in later cases and we start to see how, you know, the information shifts and, and how this game of telephone has happened. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, I just really want, like, all of my sources to, like, have backups for my sources. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. And and this was just in the paper. And this story completely differentiates from the other one. There's no motorcycle at all. Um, this happens. It, it also has a part that Carl had lost consciousness for a short time before oh. he got up and ran. And uh, that there were bloodhounds involved that followed the killer's scent for three quarters of a mile before they lost it, and there were footprints and tire prints where they lost the scent. Footprints would make sense because they had that plaster cast. But that was found somewhere else. That was found at like by a farmer, I thought. Oh, okay. All right. I thought um, that was found closer to the scene. But um, that there there was one story. Was it was that the story that compiled everything about like all different cases? Yes. Okay, all right. I feel like that was one of the ones that, that goes just completely off kilter. It really does. It has does. so like, many, like, weird details about all the other cases. None of the other details matched up at all. Like, that's the one where um, our, our wonderful miss slash missus from last time uh, had her engaged to her secret lover. Yeah. When she was actually truly already married to somebody else. Yes, yes. So the, the, it's not a reliable source by any means, but that story was completely different than the rest. And interestingly, I think that might have been one of the first ones I saw, mm-hmm. or the first one I saw when I first started looking at these, because that's one where I was like, oh, oh, okay, this that's is nice. That's the one that was linking them all together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I wish it was more accurate. <laughs> now, the story comes out about this guy. I'm calling him the loafer. The loafer. A loafer. Because there's this guy, George Schultz, all right, in Petersburg, Colorado, which I can't find on a map. <laughs> I can sort of find something. Uh, I think I, what I suspect is that Petersburg was maybe an old suburb around Denver and got mostly swallowed up by other stuff. But anyhow, doesn't really matter that much. We're going to say close to Denver. Uh, so George Schultz has a filling station. He says there's this loafer who's been hanging around hanging out in Petersburg about a month or so. And everybody kind of noticed this guy for one main reason, and that's because he had that kind of personality. Personality. You know, the one where it's just one thing. His personality is one thing. And this guy's personality is guns. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He was always armed. He was bragging about how he was a crack shot. Non-stop guns, guns, guns talk. That he could never talk about anything else. Never said his name, but did mention he was working in construction at the moment and had recently done some work on a ranch near Bennett, which is about 40 miles outside of Denver. So Schultz said the man had sold a revolver and a holster to a local in Petersburg, and then Schultz purchased said revolver and holster. The loafer came back on Saturday in a Ford car and tried to buy them back. And Schultz would only resell him the holster. So there's this idea that maybe, you know, he the, the loafer, who didn't have any money before, all of a sudden comes back with a car and enough money to buy his stuff back. Yeah, that wasn't this robbery, though. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, the, he didn't get that money here. Or that car. <laughs> yeah. Missed opportunities. Yes. And so uh, the police also, um, oh, I forgot to mention, they also intended to talk to all the 25 people from that bus that came from Englewood. So nothing ever comes of any of these things. It's uh, really kind of annoying. They, they do bring in some suspects. They bring in a William Eyre. He is 28. Um, Carl Perry kind of IDs him. He, all right, so he says, look, the shooter was wearing a straw hat, so I need you to put a straw hat on Mr. Eyre. And so they, they put a straw hat on him, but then for some reason it goes further. And I think it's because it was fun for them. But this is what it says. Detectives Burns and Frilleberg returned to the Air residence and, with the permission of Air's wife and his mother-in-law, obtained his extra clothing. They then proceeded to dress the prisoner in various garments. It was after this procedure had been followed last night that Perry was reported to have positively identified Air as the Slayer. <laughs> so, I'm a Barbie girl. It's just very weird that they're like, no, we have to dress him up now. Um, I, I mean, I guess the, whatever you can do to make him look, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a strange thing. I want to see if this would still fly. Like, I kind of want to witness a crime and then just ask for ridiculous things <laughs> in a lineup. <laughs> can you put them all in purple tube tops with red ball caps? Well, well, they keep this guy in jail for, like, three days. And they spend all this time trying to find anything that corroborates Carl Perry's positive identification. And they're finding nothing. And so they have Carl Perry... <sighs> Carl Perry's like, I need to hear his voice. And so Perry asks the, the captain of detectives, he's like, okay... Tell him to talk to me in a high-pitched voice. I need him to shout six at me. And that's what he did. And then Perry said, nope, that is not the man. I never heard that voice before. And William Eyre is let go immediately. Oh, my. I don't understand any of that. I don't understand the six thing. I definitely don't get that. Six. What is that? What would he, why would he have said that? I, I can only assume that he's asking him to say six because that's something that the killer said. Yeah. But would the killer, why would the killer have just said six? Unless it was part of a sentence, like you, you have six seconds and maybe there was something weird about the way he said it that would stand out. Like six. But why not have him say the whole sentence? It was very frustrating because I knew there had to be more to it. There had to be more. Yeah, there, there's definitely more. But remember when, when Carl was like, I don't even remember all the things he said. He was saying such vile things and wouldn't give any examples. Mm. It has to be one of the things he said. And I bet that for some reason that word stuck to him. So there had to be maybe a weird inflection on it or some sort of accent when he said it. That made it stand out to him, which is why he was like, make him say that one word. Interesting. Why he didn't tell the police why doesn't make any <laughs> sense. 
It's just so weird. He had a lisp. You you really hear it when he says six. <laughs> he he does try to identify people, just never has any success. Um, there's always these little like people popping up. Uh, um, um, C. Rickenberg in mid September was a neighbor of his. Um, the mother of three children had said he'd confessed to her and that he was connected to the murders. And then I couldn't find anything about a Richenberg anywhere else in the newspapers. Uh, the same thing happened with, uh, a, an illiterate farmhand called D.L. Pickens. Oh, another farmhand. Yep. 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 Who was, uh, he was 55 and he was drunkenly, as they admitted in the article, telling the police that he thought an ex-con that he used to know, who was now also a farmhand, had committed the murders. Apparently, his reasoning for this was the guy was, quote-unquote, slightly crippled. By the way, he had not seen the man in five years, and the last time he had seen him had been in Texas. But also, if you are slightly disabled, you are not jumping on the running board of a moving vehicle. <laughs> there are, in, the, in some of the descriptions, he has a limp. Oh, I didn't see any with a limp. Um, I, I, uh, how, how big of a grudge do you have that somebody you, you knew five years ago? And like, I bet it was that guy. Right? I bet it was him. <laughs> I wonder just, what he yeah. did. There is actually a farmhand who is suspected of some association with the murders, but not for another two years. Um, that's an M.T. Prophet in December of 1927, and that actually is the plaster of Paris mold. They think they've matched that up with his footprint, but I'm just going to assume that they were incorrect because nothing ever came of it. You know what? I bet that's why I had the footprint with the farmhands. Oh, yeah, maybe. Because yeah. it was M.T. Prophet. As soon as you said it, I'm like, yep, that's what it was. <laughs> there you go. So then it's quiet for a little while. And then almost four entire years later, the case is actually reopened because someone has stepped forward. And that is a Dorothy Jacobs. Now, she's 18 now. She was around 14 when the triple homicide happened. She was living at the Morrison Home for Girls. And had gone out with another girl and two soldiers from Fort Logan. Apparently, we're just letting 14-year-olds go off with soldiers. Great. Uh, they were parked near Yale Avenue and South Federal Boulevard on the left side of the street. And they saw a little roadster drive to the corner, turn around and face them, then stop. It was on the, the right side of the street. They said that the lights, um, well, this is Dorothy saying this, the lights in the car she was in were dimmed, but she could get a pretty good view of the, the people in the Roadster. She did not recognize them, but there was some conversation, some back and forth between the two cars. One of the soldiers said something to one of the men in the Roadster a minute or two after the second car pulled up, and they had a very short conversation, but we don't know what the contents of that were. And then... Quote, a short time later, they heard an argument, apparently between two men, the girl said in her statement. It was a few minutes later, she claims, when the shots were fired. She declares she then saw a man walk across the roadster and cut off across the field. 
Perry, the only surviving member of the party, wandered about a mile and a half from the scene of the shooting to a drugstore and called police. So that's a really weird little story. Yeah. And that doesn't really seem to line up with a lot, though. Yeah, that is true. It it does not. Um, Dorothy says she and her group left the scene immediately after that and went home. They got home uh, sometime around midnight. At least that's when no, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. <laughs> uh, so the police talked to the soldiers and her friend. They would not even admit to being in the car with her that night, much less witnessing anything. Huh. Mm-hmm. Um, even Dorothy said that she'd only mentioned it to one person over the years. Um, because her soldier friends had told her to uh, keep mum or they'd be in hot water. Were they not supposed to be out? Probably definitely not with minors. Probably probably not with minors, maybe. So the police, they go ahead and they reopen the investigation. Uh, but they've got some side-eye from for Dorothy's story. Now, nothing ever seemed to come of that. Just like everything else. And I don't know what came of Dorothy. I don't know if she's the same one who ended up in Indianapolis in 1931, who is just about the right age. Um, but there was a Dorothy Jacobs who um, just couldn't seem to get away from murders. So Miss Dorothy Jacobs, 22, who is alleged to have slain her common-law husband, Robert Morrison, last August, was convicted today of involuntary manslaughter. She probably will be sentenced, probably will be sentenced next Saturday. Morrison was stabbed with a butcher knife at an apartment where he had been living with Miss Jacobs. She pleaded self-defense. Hmm. Uh, like I said, Dorothy Jacobs, pretty common name. Um, but, you know, still in the Midwest-ish... Um, could like, be, could be, could be, um, either way, girls named Dorothy Jacobs need to straighten up and fly right here. <laughs> so yeah, don't know what's going on there, but now five years down after everything has gone on, you have police saying the Denver murders were connected to these new murders happening in Queens. And this is where the connections start coming in. Um, they say <laughs> that in this case, the, they are calling him the sweetheart murderer. Now, we've got a different name. That sounds too nice. That sounds too nice for a serial killer. The sweetheart. It sounds, no, sweetheart doesn't belong with murderer. It sounds way too cute. Way too cute. Um, and they're... they're they get some things wrong. It's, this is an AP article. They say that they mutilated the faces of his woman victims. We have not seen any mutilation, I don't believe. No, not yeah, really. Not really. Um, spoke in a high, squeaky voice. No. Shabbily dressed. Well, silk shirt is not shabby by any means. Not by any means. No, 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 no. But they do in this article, kind of connected to the one that's ongoing in Queens at the time, which, you know, I've said there is a possibility of a connection, and we'll get into that. 
I did bring up, um, I always get it confused, the man and woman's clothing, woman and man's clothing, because I so want it to be that one. Um, they do in these articles say a man and woman's clothing. So that is coming down the line when we get to the, the, the queen's killers. Killer. The queen's killer. The queen killer. Oh, that's going to be so hard to say. <laughs> queen's killer. So, but yeah, it's definitely... In this AP article, they're saying that in the 1930 case, they're looking for a man in woman's clothing. And then they think that the 1925 murderer was a woman dressed as a man. Quote, and psychologists suggested that the slayer might have been a woman deranged by disappointment in love. The killer spoke in a high, squeaky voice, was shabbily dressed, and killed only lovers. Maybe but, it's just somebody that had their balls injured in some way that gave them the high voice. <laughs> I mean, it's just the voice thing definitely does seem to carry through a lot of the stories. Yeah, that is the one thing that everything has in common. So... So yeah, that's really honestly, um, that's where we're at. We're about, we're we're kind of winding down on the nineteen twenty five murders. Um, these are, I think, we've got one more really strongly connected case, and a couple of iffy ones, and then one I kind of just want to tell because it's bonkers. Yes, <laughs> it's absolutely wild. Like. I read two paragraphs of a news article and was getting an envelope and a pen and trying to write a family tree before I even, like, I was like, how are these people related? What the hell? He's, how could he, how could he be his brother-in-law and her brother? What? <laughs> it was very confusing. It's like a West Virginia family reunion. It is great. Um, so yes, we're, we're, we're winding down on the 1925 stuff and then we're going to work on, you know, into the 1930s stuff. So trying introducing some of that 1930s stuff is definitely, um, it's, it's going to start peeking in just because there's more tie-ins, I think, with these later cases. I don't know why. No, reporting got a little better, probably. Probably. And I think the narrative of the squeaky voice had really started to set in especially with this, with the Denver case. Yeah, well, and you know what? I, I did find that surprising because there was only one or two articles that I found that even mentioned the voice at all. And everything else just kind of glossed over it for some reason. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, that's not an important detail. Yeah, and the voice thing becomes so hugely important, if memory serves, in the 1930 articles. So it's really interesting to see how this works out. Well, I mean, because whatever they were doing in 1925 was obviously not working. <laughs> right. So uh, I would love if the Denver papers from that year ever get uploaded or if one of us makes it to Denver someday and can spend a day at the library to be able to actually research this case with the local papers because I'm sure there's a lot of information that we missed out on by virtue of not really having anything local during the relevant time period. Yeah, because the local stuff definitely would have more. That is so frustrating, but it happens. Hopefully we won't run into that with future cases in this miniseries. Huh. So, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. So, uh, with that, uh, that's our case, pretty much. 
I do believe. Do you have anything else, Amber? Did I miss anything? I do not have anything else other than uh, one other way that the murderer got away. Because source is very wildly. Uh, so this one said that, again, with the bloodhounds, they were on the trail. And uh, it led them to an interurban line. And uh, they believe that he uh, boarded an electric train. Mm. And I'm like, oh, that was the first one that said train. But yeah, that's it. That was the only thing I had. Yeah, that would connect with the the stories from witnesses in the in the actually no in another murder. Oh, and the oh. one we did in the tiny that we insisted was not related to these ones. Oops. Maybe I'll add this to that that to this feed at some point. Maybe <laughs> at the end of all this, I'll do it as a little bonus episode. There you go. So, but yes, thank you, Amber. And welcome to the Patreon, J1987, Nicole Manger, and Mana. Welcome. Uh, old-timey, crummy advice that is not about doing crimes, because Amber already did that. Um, so, don't try to jump from a motorcycle onto a running board. I don't know. That seemed like it worked out fine. Um... Don't sit on somebody's lap because you become their human shield. Oh, yes, that did sort of happen, didn't it? Make the boy sit on your lap. Do's and don'ts. Do come over to our Patreon. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Do use new friends as human shields. And don't forget to set the parking brake. Bye. Bye. Charges. Six. Six. No, it would be shouting in a high-pitched voice. It would be like, six. That was crazy. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> My sources are uh, from Colorado Historic Newspapers, The Daily Journal, Aspen Daily Times, Oak Creek Times, The Daily Times. I'm begging you people to just to name yeah. things different. No. The Englewood Herald, the Colorado Transcript from Newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia, Fort Collins, Colorado in... San Francisco Examiner, Albuquerque Journal, Fairbury Journal, Tapping the Sign, Salt Lake Telegram, and Ancestry.com. All of mine is from newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia, a second time. The uh, Kenosha News, Our Mountain Home, The Times, The Ardmore Daily Press, The Press Democrat, Kentucky Post and Times Star, Fort Collins Coloradian, Logan Sport Pharaoh's Tribune, Casper Star Tribune, Lincoln, Nebraska State Journal. <laughs> that was very, very, very Midwestern. I was trying. <laughs>